On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to ask the question about whether or not there should be a statute of limitations on things you did in your past. Should there, should there not be? I mean, certainly this stems from the Justin Trudeau photos, but this is just one example. There are lots of people in all kinds of sectors of society who have paid a price because they did something once upon a time that has popped up later on. Justin Trudeau may be the outlier in this one because he was an adult and he was someone who was a teacher. He was in a position of leadership. But should there be a time when you say, you know what, anything you did before you're 19, we're just going to ignore it. We'll talk about that one. Uh, we're also going to be chatting with the Ticats. Rick Zamperin will join us. They play Edmonton on Friday without Edmonton's starting quarterback, which seems to be a pattern for the Ticats. They're missing their quarterback, but so are a lot of the teams they're playing. And spoiler alerts. Speaking of statutes of limitations, should there be a statute of limitations on how old a movie can be when you can give away the spoiler, the ending, this twist, without someone wanting to take a screwdriver and jam it into your ear? Should there be old movies that are old enough that you can say, you know, we can talk about the ending even if it's a surprise and no one's going to get mad? All that coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You have heard, I, I'm, I'm positive you've been following, you've heard, whether you want to or not, you've been hearing the stories about Justin Trudeau and blackface and the explosion that this has wrought, not just here in Canada, the studio or the television here in the studio is on and they are showing a segment of clips from all around the world where Justin Trudeau is now being talked about with these pictures. But here's the thing about this topic. As I say, you have heard this all day today, ad infinitum today, here Bill and Scott have done a terrific job. Elsewhere, people have done a great job covering this. It's been thoroughly covered. So I want to I take this on a slightly different tangent. We're not going to just jump on the same thing that everyone's been talking about all day. I want to talk about social media. I want to talk about these other things because this is a story that comes from an old photo. Now, Justin Trudeau, to be clear, it is slightly different. We're not letting him completely off the hook here because Justin Trudeau was a grown man. He was 30 when this photo was taken. He was a teacher. But we do see in politics especially, but also in private business and other places, public sector work, we see old social media posts, old photos, old comments, old films, old whatever, come back to bite people and cost them jobs, cost them reputation, Should it, should there be a statute of limitations of some kind or some sort of thing that says, you know what, if you did something really stupid when you were very young and we can apply this to politics as well, should that be something we say, you know what, we're going to give you a pass on this one. I want to bring in Barry Kay. He is an associate professor in the department of political science at Wilfrid Laurier university. He is a regular contributor here on 900 CHML for a very good reason, because he's great at what he does. Barry, thanks for doing this today. Hello. What do you think? This this one is a slightly different case, but we've seen in politics many, many, many times now, in recent years especially, old clips, old comments, old whatever that get dredged up from years and years and years ago. Should that continue to be fair game or should there be some kind of statute of limitations on these things where people say, you know what, that was that was now 20 years ago. How can I be responsible for that? I guess the answer is it depends. Uh, I certainly wouldn't give a categorical yes or no to the question of should everybody be excused for everything they've ever done, even if they're prepared to apologize now. Uh, we, we've seen that this is just the latest of a raft of these 
you know, bozo eruptions, they might be called, <laughs> yeah. that have emerged. I mean, the first week of the campaign was mostly characterized by each of the parties outing somebody from another party about the thing. And that seems to be what their, um, their war rooms are getting into, is sort of going through old Facebook and old uh, Twitter uh, accounts and whatever to find out whatever's embarrassing. Uh, some of the people should have been outed. Uh, some of the cases, perhaps less so. Uh, with regard to, uh, to Trudeau, uh, I'm not at all sure... I mean, this is serious, and it clearly was a mistake, and he said that himself, so that's beyond discussion. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to have a devastating impact on him. It's going to have a negative impact on him. I, uh, in my uh, lecture today, I had about 90 to 100 students. I'm not sure the exact number, but I, I asked, I, we were talking about other things mostly, but at the beginning, I asked them how many people would, would vote differently as a result of this. And out of uh, 90 to 100 people, three people put up their hands. That would vote differently. That's right. Okay. Now, and, and, and they didn't all speak to the reasons why. The, mo- the, the, the people that did speak, and there were hardly any of them, uh, were people that were kind of back and forth anyway, who were, who were not very committed. My sense is that, in fact, while this is a negative story and it's going to go on for a while, and goodness, there have been enough um, leaks now of pictures and so forth, I, I, I do think it is going to go on for a while. If there's been this many coming out in the first 24 hours, there's more to come. And there may be more incidents that they were taken from to come. Uh, but that, um, uh, so I, I'm not suggesting it's over, but I'm not sure the intensity level is such that this is going to seriously harm. I think it is going to harm somewhat to seriously harm um, the, the liberal campaign. And I certainly don't think someone asked me whether I thought Trudeau was finished, and I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I go back to the Lavalin scandal, quote unquote, which I think is much more serious and certainly a much more recent example of unethical behavior on the part of the um, on the part of the prime minister in his office, that indeed that seems to have dissipated, not totally gone yet, but that seems to have largely dissipated in just a few months. Um, now again, we still, we're what, within four and a half weeks to the election, so there's less time involved now. I'm not convinced that this is as big a story as it's getting played at the moment. Your broader question, um, you know, I guess which I answered with a qualified answer, you know, <laughs> response as to whether or not people should be forgiven. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. I can think of some of the things that have been said. There's somebody involved with, um, it seems, wife-beating. Now, these are people that were relatively invisible. Typically, the people that these things happen to are not serious candidates. They're candidates from parties where they are in throwaway ridings, but there's exceptions to that. Um, but I can think of some people, at least in one case, uh, where, in fact, the person was in a very winnable riding and said things that were truly offensive, and uh, he should have been eliminated. And they were re- fairly recent, within the last two years. To say there should be a statute of limitations after 10 or 20 years, I'm not so sure about. I think things that you do before you graduate from college, perhaps that might be the line. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the the. the- Old pictures, old photos, that kind of thing. A little bit different in this particular case. Wrong with Barry Kay, uh, professor of political science at Wilfrid Laurie, a regular contributor here on CHML. And Barry, just before the break, we had said, or I had suggested that, you know, I don't think too many of us would want to be held to some sort of impossible standard for something stupid we said when we were 18 or 19 or 20, if we're now mature, hopefully, and grown. But, but if you have said something that you know that you've got out there or that you've done that was really stupid in the past. I guess what a lot of people are saying about Trudeau today is if you've got that in your background, if you know that you've done that, should you be eminently careful not to come across as too pious when you tisk tisk to other people who do things? Well, look, uh, hypocrisy is the mother's milk of politics. I'm sure they all do it to greater or lesser extents. Um, look, just apart from everything else, 
Trudeau has just undertaken a number of foolish decisions, not just with regard to Lavalin, which I think is, is more serious than this, um, but with regard to the way this was handled. Uh, he must have known these, these were out there because we're not talking about just about one incident and one photo. We're talking about, in fact, it was in a yearbook. That was a very public kind of document. Um, we, we find that um, he could have under, undercut the, it was going to be a problem regardless. But, but back, if you remember some months ago when in the, the state of Virginia, the, the same kind of thing happened with the then governor. I guess he's still the governor and several others. That could have been an opportunity for him to at least try to get the story, some of the story out himself. To He would have lessened the impact that this had. One of the things I'm wondering is why this didn't come out in 2015 during that election. I'm, I'm amazed by that, too. As you say, it's a book that's been out there. It's not hidden. The, the, and I'm told that the conservatives had this information ready to go, but they were waiting till later in the campaign when they would reveal it more in a more strategic strategic period. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't have good judgment. Look, I've never thought that um, I, I, that Trudeau is all, all that much substance. He's much more style all the way through in terms of the way he's been successful, but he's been up against opponents who have perhaps even been less less substance. And clearly Andrew Scheer has not been able to, to set the house on fire with regard to, to his party either. I, I still think the, the Liberals could win this election. I'm not sure to what extent there's going to be a negative impact. I do expect some, but I don't think it ne- it's necessarily going to be large. But we're dealing with the, the um, privileged son of an entitled family who just has felt that he could get away with things. Um, I don't think he's a racist, even though the, you know, these particular in- incidents clearly are seen as, as, as racist in contemporary society. There's nothing based on his um, behavior in office to suggest he's racist at all. That he's hypocritical, absolutely, not just with regard to this issue, but with other issues as well. But that's the way it goes with politics. As to the fairness of it all, um, I, I guess that depends on circumstances. When you're running for public office, it's a little bit more than just running for some sort or, or applying for a job, where certain things may come out. I remember in years gone by, and maybe still, it suggested that if you ever get involved in compromising photographs online, that's something that one should be aware may come and haunt you when you apply for jobs. I'm not sure that's fair. But it may be the case in certain circumstances. For public office, it's a matter of whether or not this is something that's going to offend the population. And if the population is going to be offended by this, my sense is they are offended, but only slightly, not to the degree they're likely to change votes. Let me let me jump in with one last thing. We only have a minute or so left here. There was a, a piece in the National Post today, and it had a great line in it, because I thought this gets to the heart of what this is all about. And if you have one of these embarrassing or troubling photos or comments from social media, whatever comes out, here's what the line. As it stands now... All we have is a sliding scale, maximum forgiveness for those who agree with us and none at all for those who do not. And that seems to be a big part of the problem here is that there are all kinds of people who are liberal supporters saying this is absolutely meaningless and all kinds of people who aren't liberal supporters saying this is the worst thing in the world and there is no middle ground and no one's agreeing on anything. Well, I certainly agree with the sentiment. I think there are a few people in the middle who perhaps are troubled um, and not everybody is a clear-cut partisan of one one side or another but uh yeah the, the statement's true if you if you support the liberals this is harmless if you support one of the other parties it, it's terrible and frankly it isn't going to change any of their votes anyway i think there are a few people in the middle barry k from wilford laurie always appreciate your time thanks for taking a few minutes tonight thank you uh here's one thing just that as we're going away and, and this is part of the reason i think why this has become a big deal it's it's it is because it's the prime minister for sure. It is because he's running for office and we're in an election for sure. But yesterday in Justin Trudeau and Prime Minister Trudeau's apology, one of the things he said was, and you could see it in the headlines today, he didn't really realize 
back when he was doing this that this was racist. Well, now he sees that it is, but back then he didn't realize this was racist. In other words, my behavior back then was not wrong because it was normal. It was accepted. It was part of the social fabric. It was part of, it was not something that was going to appall people or shock people. The problem with that, if you're Justin Trudeau, is he has repeatedly apologized for the behaviors of past governments for things that they did, follow the logic here, that back when they did those things were not considered wrong. They were not considered ill-mannered or racist or whatever else. Now, by modern times, yes. And so he changed the name of the Langevin block because that particular politician was involved with the residential school program. At the time, it was considered something that was acceptable. Langevin, I'm not sure, I haven't studied him enough to give a deep dive into his psyche, but from everything I've seen, he was not an evil man at his core. He didn't believe what he was doing was an evil thing. We look at it as a bad thing now. But times change. But if Justin Trudeau, all these many times before, has said what happened in the past, regardless of the fact that that was acceptable at that time, it's not forgivable. It's not allowable. That's the same argument he's using now. It was fine back then. Well, he has many times said it's not acceptable then for that thing, that person, that whatever to carry on. And yet, What's driving a lot of people nuts right now is, oh, but it's okay with me because it was different times. It's the same argument. It's the same argument he's been using for a lot of other things. We'll, we'll leave that there for now. It's the scolding, I think, that people are blanching at. They get tired of being scolded and then they discover that the school marm that's been doing the scolding has some skeletons in the closet herself or himself in this particular case. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Did you catch this story today? It, it just came out this afternoon. It's a local story. An anonymous donor has offered the city a million dollars to save the Hamilton aviary. You know, like the bird zoo. A million dollars to save the birds. <laughs> you know, look, bless the person, the anonymous person who wants to help the birds. I got a few things I think we could do with a million bucks more than save the birds. We got some people who aren't, you know, don't have homes. We got some social problems. We got streets that could, I mean, uh, you know, a million bucks only goes so far. I get it. And I'm not, look, if it's your million dollars, you can do what you want to do with your million dollars. If it was my million dollars, you take the birds, you barbecue the birds, you feed some hungry people, (laughs) and you sell the land for a home. And you can probably come out ahead. Then you can give the extra to some sort of social program and feel good about yourself and on we go. Probably not the most popular position to take in the city of Hamilton that the aviary should actually be a stockyard for future poultry. (laughs) Nonetheless, you know, maybe that's what they should put on all the little signs of the birds. Instead of saying, you know, pheasant, put a recipe. If you have one of these, here's what you can make with it. Anyway, a million bucks to go towards saving the Hamilton aviary. Have you ever been to the aviary? Last time I, I don't even know where it is now. Last time I saw it, it was at Dundurn Castle and that was, phew, that was a long time ago now. 
you can send your hate mail to Radley at 900CHML.com if you disagree. Anyway, there's a, I just thought it was an interesting story. A million bucks someone wants to give to keep the birds going. Uh, you know what else is going? Still going. Then it's a good thing this time. The Hamilton Ticats are going there. Well, they didn't, they're not really going because they never came home. After playing against Calgary and losing a close one last week, they stayed out west, practiced out west, and they have the Edmonton Eskimos tomorrow night. 9.30 is game time. Probably 12, 12.30 will be the fifth quarter here on 900 CHML with Rick Zamperin at the helm. So uh, if you are watching or listening or following the game in any way, shape, or form, you can call... Rick Zamperin, you can talk to Rick Zamperin. You can you can have an audience with the Rick Zamperin tomorrow on the fifth quarter, uh, which I am blessed, blessed to have right now. Mr. Zamperin, how are you? Blessed? Well, that is high praise, I guess. I, you know, I think we should just start calling you Pope Zamperin around here because, uh, because of what you do. Uh, All I you, need is a big white hat. Well, you know, the Pope... Some people think, you know, brings answers to prayers. And I think that there are some Ticat players who have been slipping the Pope a few bucks because, it, Rick, there have been a number of games this year. The Ticats, first game of the year, uh, you can't say they didn't face Zach Caleros, but they kind of nearly killed Zach Caleros. They didn't see him for much of the game. They missed a game against Bo Levi Mitchell while he's hurt. And now they go to Edmonton, and Trevor Harris, the starting quarterback, is out with an injury. They are the Angels are on their side a little bit this year. Yeah, you know what? They, they played uh, the Alouettes with, uh, you know, uh, not the greatest of quarterbacks. Uh, the Ottawa Red Blacks in the same story. We know that Mike Riley is a tremendous quarterback, but a very bad team in D.C. Uh, they're going to be facing Winnipeg without Matt Nichols uh, next week. So, yeah, things have kind of gone their way in terms of the opposing quarterbacks not playing either well or, or not being there because of injury. And tomorrow night is going to be the same story. Trevor Harris is an upper body injury, so he's out. Uh, but if you're a Ticats fan, you're probably saying, hold, you know, let's pump the brakes here. I know where you're going. We have our own quarterback yep. quandary or, or, or issue because Jeremiah Masoli's gone for the rest of the year, and we've been riding the uh, Dane Evans train, and while some games have been good, some have not been so good. So there's a little bit of back and forth. I'm sure the Ticats fans would have on this issue. Yeah, no, I look, absolutely. The Ticats have done their 9-3 and three now. They've done it primarily without Jeremiah Masoli. So it's not that the Ticats have been at a huge advantage. It's only that the Ticats have not been at a massive disadvantage, which you might have thought earlier this year when Masoli went down. Well, sure. I mean, let's say Masoli goes down, but they still face Bo Levi Mitchell and you know Trevor Harris tomorrow night, and you know Winnipeg doesn't have their issues, and maybe BC's a little bit better. Uh, you know, this this nine and three record can be I don't know seven and five, uh, maybe six and six. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if nine and three is indicative of the overall quality of the team, and I'm including the new starting quarterback in that conversation, but. I mean, you only play the next team on your schedule, and the team that they've played nine times this season, they've beaten. So that's all you can ask for on, on game day is that you just have to beat the team on the other side of you, and, and they've done that. You have, when you do the fifth quarter, I think you have one of the more entertaining jobs to do a lot of the time. 
what has for any for those who have not listened and first of all for anyone who has not tuned in and not listened shame on you may a pox fall upon your family for not tuning in and hearing rick but besides that what has the consensus been around dane evans because i gotta believe there may be a mixed bag on this one there's a wildly mixed bag because there's one faction that is hey we're gonna go all the way dane has played great uh, there's the polar opposite in which, you know what, the Ticats have not really beaten a good team with Dane Evans under center. You know, two wins against BC, one against Toronto on Labor Day, uh, one against Ottawa, and the combined record of those four teams is 7-28. and 28. And then you have a lot of the fans who, who I think are in the middle, and they're saying, you know, Dane Evans can hold his own. The key, however, to this championship run that everyone is hoping for this year is the defense and the special teams. But more importantly, the defense, because not only has the defense played good, but the defense has played consistently well all season. So I think Ticats fans are uh, you know, hanging their hat on, if we can get, as we have all season, a solid defensive performance, Nate Evans doesn't have to be the next uh, Anthony Calvillo or, or Ron Lancaster or Ricky Ray. He just has to manage the game don't make mistakes like they did last week in Calgary, and, you know, they should be fine. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show with His Holiness, Rick Zamperin, the Pope of CHML. <laughs> we're going to go with wow. that now. Uh, we're talking about the Ticats, as the Arkells just mentioned, and they play Edmonton tomorrow night, 9.30, the fifth quarter to follow here on 900 CHML. Rick, uh, one more thing about this before I dive into something else really quickly. There are nine teams in the CFL. Eight of their start, eight of them have lost their starting quarterback for at least part of the year this year. The one team whose starting quarterback is still standing is the one team that lets their quarterback get hit like no other team maybe in the history of football. How is Mike Riley possibly the last man standing? I think Mike Riley is some kind of android because I, I don't know. I mean, and it's not like the sack stats are close. Uh, he has been brought down uh, more often than uh, you know any other quarterback maybe combined in the CFL. It's absolutely ridiculous how many times he's been sacked, yet he just keeps on getting up and keeps on going under center. And for a team that is well out of the playoff race, you know, they got to do a lot more to protect a guy like that because he's signed for a few more seasons and is signed for a lot of money. So, you know, BC, their, their main goal right now is just to make sure that not only does he finish the season, but he finishes the season without any more bumps, bumps and bruises. But that is one of the anomalies of this Canadian football league year is that the guy who's been brought down more than any other person is still standing. It's remarkable. How Mike Riley does not have a sponsorship deal with an Epsom salts company is beyond me. That guy should be doing TV commercials for rub a five, three, five and all that kind of stuff. Uh, okay. I want to switch over to hockey for just a minute because yeah. the Maple Leafs are in the middle of their exhibition season. They've lost their first two to the mighty Ottawa senators, uh, which I think is probably all the evidence we need. This is going to be a terrible lost year for the Leafs. It's hopeless. <laughs> yes. However, Mike Babcock, Mike Babcock is an interesting guy because when he arrived here, he was the savior. And let's not make any bones about it. He did turn this team around. But there is a faction now that is looking at Mike Babcock like, what are you doing at this point? We saw that since last year. 
He's talking about Jason Spezza. Spezza is a free agent, signs with the Leafs, wants to play here. Toronto guy, end of the end of the line, basically. And Babcock says, here's his quote, Spezza is trying to figure out if he's interested, and we're doing the same. It, like, you're not even two games into your preseason, and it looks like you're already teeing off on one of the guys that I think his general manager is hoping is going to be a veteran leader in the dressing room. What I'm, I'm, I'm missing something here. Yeah, this one was puzzling to me, too, because, you know, this is something you might say halfway through a season to rile up a particular player or maybe a line or a defensive combination or maybe a goalie. Uh, but in, in, in game number two of the preseason, um, either Jason Spezza is really uninterested in continuing his NHL career or he has really rubbed Mike Babcock the wrong way uh, or, maybe, or maybe both. But, yeah, very puzzling at this stage of the exhibition season. I mean, they're not even playing for real, and Babs is already throwing barbs. It, it lends me to believe two things. Number one, that either, either he doesn't think Spezza can be a contributor on this team, or number two, Babcock is feeling so much heat because this is really a make-or-break year for him uh, that he is starting to maybe lay some – some landmines here and there and, and see who steps on them. Do you, you ever wonder if this is one of those guys that, like, it looks like Dubas got rid of, Kyle Dubas, the general manager, got rid of some guys in the offseason specifically because they were Mike Babcock favorites. It, it's almost hard not to see that. Kind of like in the movie Moneyball when uh, Brad Pitt decides to trade the guy just because the manager will only play that guy. It's like, okay, well, we'll trade him then. You can't use him. I, I, that's kind of how it looks. I'm wondering yeah. if Babcock never wanted Spezza and now he's just kind of throwing it back at his general manager saying, see, he can't play. We don't want this guy. Well, I can say for sure that, uh, you know, Mike Babcock would rather have a guy like Connor Brown, who's now with the Ottawa Senators, than Jason Spezza. Because, you know, Brown does a lot more things on the dis- defensive side of the hockey rink, and that's where I think Mike Babcock really likes to concentrate things. He, he does like a, you know, an offensive, puck-moving, fast, highly skilled team, but he also wants guys that are very responsible in his own zone. Think about the guys that he had, you know, given a lot of ice time to, guys like Connor Brown, uh, you know, Trevor Moore, who has really, you know, climbed the ladder in this Maple Leafs organization because he's a guy who's responsible in his own end. And I think Babcock really, you know, uh, treasures those types of players. And he realizes that not only is Spezza, you know, on the downside of his career, but he, he doesn't really care for the defensive side of the game. So maybe he's sending his GM, Carl Dubas, a message to say, this is not the type of player that I want. This is not the type of player that's going to lead us to the second round or beyond in the playoffs. This year better get started on the right foot for the Maple Leafs. So you could, this thing could, we got to run, but this thing could get really soap opera-esque really fast. I, I, I really believe with all the expectations and all this stuff. Uh, anyway, we will, uh, another day, but tomorrow, you can hear Rick tomorrow. Not only during the day, but then fifth quarter after the game tomorrow night. Rick, thanks for taking some time today. You got it. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So we were talking last hour about the statute of limitations. Now, that was about social media misbehaviors tied into the Justin Trudeau thing. But if you did something once upon a time and you were young and you were idiotic and you put something out there and your picture was taken or whatever, what, should there be a statute of limitations on how long that can be held against you? Well, 
we're going to ratchet things up a little bit. We're going to stay talking about a statute of limitations, but this one, way more serious, way more serious. This is something that could cost you your friends, your social standing. It could lead to you being excommunicated from whatever social clubs you belong to. Spoilers. You see a movie and you give away the ending before your friends have seen it or a TV show and you give away the ending before your friends have seen it. I am telling you, you are taking your life in your hands. You tell them the ending to the Sopranos. If they haven't seen it, somebody will hurt you. You tell them the ending to the crying game. Once upon a time, you tell them the ending to every M night Shyamalan movie. You're asking for trouble. So is there a statute of limitations on this? When is a movie old enough that you can talk about the ending and it's no longer a spoiler? I want to bring in someone we love having on this show because he is the best at what he does. His name is Robert Thompson. He's the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. He joins us now. Robert, thanks for doing this today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. You know, I don't think there's, there's no dispute, is there, that people do lose their minds a little bit if they are hoping to catch the end of something and someone gives away the ending. They do, and as you just pointed out, uh, some of them feel very, very strongly about uh, these things. And I'd love to be able to give a, uh, an official declaration that, uh, you know, the spoiler is, is effective for 13 months and four days or whatever. Uh, but, of course, that's not how it works. It, it, to do this, you do it like anything else. Uh, in context, if you're... Um, uh, talking with someone who hasn't seen something, and uh, they will generally tell you not to tell them. Uh, you don't. It, it's just like uh, uh, you don't talk about how delicious the ice cream you just had uh, to someone who's lactose intolerant. <laughs> it's polite. Um, and I think in many cases, it, 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 one just has to assess who it is one's talking, uh, uh, talking to. Now, there is the issue of critics who, you know, critics have got to be able to talk about these things. That one critic who uh, got uh, flack on uh, Twitter uh, for revealing that uh, uh, Hamlet dies at the end of Hamlet. Uh, (laughs) That was many centuries ago. I think whatever we say is the statute of limitations, uh, any thinking person uh, probably ought to know how Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet or Moby Dick uh, ends, and we should be able to talk about that. I also have a lot of trouble in my classes. I teach a television history class where to understand what we're talking about, we have to know how these things uh, uh, ended, how they worked organically and all the rest of it. Uh, And I have a lot of students who get really upset about that. I showed the last 10 minutes of Spike Lee's Bamboozle, which is decades old, um, uh, and had a student who, you know, I think, you know, wanted to... uh, uh, get the pitchforks and the villagers and come after me for it. Well, let's use that an example like that because I can remember a number of years ago, one of the movies where it's the only movie really that I can think of in modern times, although maybe Psycho did this as well, but where they specifically said, the directors, the producers said, please don't give away the ending. And that was The Crying Game, which came out in 1992. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to test the theory of whether or not we've reached that statute of limitations by giving the ending away right now. But uh, see, I have no idea, Robert, if anybody still wants to watch The Crying Game. I don't know if it is available anywhere. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone who hasn't seen it at this point. 
But here's the thing. If I was to give the ending away right now, 27 years later, am I out of line? Well, in the context of this conversation, uh, you you probably would be, only insofar as how that movie ends is not important to what we're talking about right now. What's important is that something happens in that movie that really blows your mind when you see it. I remember distinctly sitting in the theater uh, watching it. And there are, of course, uh, uh, people out there who will still have the opportunity to see that film, and it's still available, I'm sure, someplace uh, uh, for them to see. So if, if, you were, if we were having a you know, lecture in a film course about uh, uh, the crying game, then I think it, it, that's fair game. It's been out forever. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, right now, I suppose it's, uh, it's not necessary to uh, uh, give that out. I'm glad you brought up Psycho, because you're absolutely right. Psycho, when that opened, had a big deal made of the fact that you were not allowed to um, enter the theater after, like, the first 13 minutes. They didn't want anybody to, uh, uh, they wanted to make sure they controlled the information, because that film also, of course, has a very surprising thing happen, not at the end, but uh, surprisingly early. Um, so we've been talking about these things for, uh, you know, for a long time, and I suppose there's centuries and centuries of books out there, uh, some of which have, uh, you know, what happens to all those folks in Pride and Prejudice? I guess if you've never read it, uh, you'd rather not be told. But at some point, okay, let me back up for a second. What, what we're talking about is if I am intentionally going to go up to you because I know you are reading a book and I go, hey, you know what? Uh, the butler does it. I mean, like, right. yeah, you have every right, I think, to hate me at that point for just ruining the book. But if we're just having a conversation and it's been 27 years, again, like crying game, and we're just in conversation and I just sort of assume it's so long ago, hey, that's like what happened at the end of crying game. Do you have a right to say, wait, what? How could you possibly ruin that? Because you would just assume it's been so long that somebody would have, if they were ever going to watch it, you've probably already seen it. Uh, Yeah, no, I don't think I would have a right to do that. I mean, when we talk about Citizen Kane, which is considered one of the great movies uh, uh, ever made, uh, one of the ways we talk about that is how brilliantly it worked up to that ending and how that ending was such a perfect metaphor for uh, so many things. And, you know, to have to not, I I mean, uh, I don't know, I think at some point you kind of assume people either A, have already seen it or heard about it, or seen, heard it's being ending revealed in the hundred places it's been revealed, or they're probably never going to watch it. So, um, again, I think there's a certain common sense thing about this. But, you know, it's not as big a deal, I think, as we often think it is. There are certain um, uh, programs, like, uh, and the ending of The Sopranos is a good example. That, uh, that show, if you reveal it, uh, you don't get to have the shock that uh, happens uh, when you see it. But I'm thinking about other great shows like, like Mad Men or Breaking Bad. You could talk about that, and it, it, it was the process of watching those shows happen, much less than specific information. I mean, I guess you could ruin some things by saying, you know, certain characters, whether they die or not, and maybe say how they die, but... Um, I don't know what you would tell me right now about Mad Men that would really ruin Mad Men for me, because if I hadn't watched it at all, I wouldn't know enough detail to even understand what you were talking about, and I'd have forgotten it by the time I got to that uh, episode. 
And, uh, you know, a show like that ends, I thought it ended quite beautifully, but it's not exactly an end that you can spoil for somebody. But does it, is it changed? Does anything change because of the society we're in now, the streaming society? Because once upon a time, if you wanted to see a movie, you had really two choices. You go to the theater and then a little later on you, or you would go to the video store and rent a video, but it was a very deliberate action. You had to go and do it. Now I could just, you know, everything's online pretty much. I can just click on a button. And so I may not have ever made the attempt or the intention to go and see it, but suddenly I may five, 10 years from now change. So really don't tell me the ending of anything. I don't care how old it is. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think this was a technological change and I think it's been around for a a long time. Ever since we had, uh, Video, uh, uh, ever, ever since movies started being released on video, so we're, we're talking about what, the late 70s, early 1980s. Before that, you're right, there was this window where a movie would open, and it would play in the major uh, uh, release for a couple of weeks, and then for a couple of weeks more, it would go to the smaller theaters, and then it went away. And maybe you'd see it on late-night television uh, uh, years from then, but there was a sense that a, a movie played, it had an active period, and then it had a uh, uh, like like a date on a milk carton, an expiration date. And I think after that point, after it had left the theaters, then anybody who was going to see it uh, would see it. And if they weren't, gonna, if they hadn't seen it, you would have to tell them how it ended because they wouldn't have the other opportunity. The same was true of uh, uh, of television, even up to the late. Uh, who shot J.R. for example? Uh, uh, those kinds of things. Everybody saw it uh, when it played. Uh, the week that it played, and if they didn't, they depended upon people to tell them what happened. Once we were able to start watching this stuff at our own pace when we wanted, and the VCR made that possible, the DVR made it even more easy, and of course streaming has completely changed the landscape. That's it's those technologies that have made this a problem. I, and I know that, you know, when, when Dallas had Who Shot JR, we were already into the VCR and the Betamax age, but still, that was a show that people were still all watching live. There were millions of people who tuned in. Today, 2019, if that same show happens and Netflix ends the season with that cliffhanger and the show comes out at midnight on September the 1st, if you tell your friend before they get to their TV that afternoon, Jr. won't be the only one getting shot. I mean, there will be people who will lose their minds. And, and, and if we go back, though, to 1981 when that uh, uh, was revealed, or 1980, 81, I think, um, anybody who did not know who shot Jr. by noon of the morning after they finally got around to revealing that, yeah. it took a long time uh, to do it, uh, would have would have had to have been living in a cave. So there really wasn't that issue that you had to worry about. By the way, do you remember who shot JR? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know. Given the nature of this conversation, maybe I shouldn't reveal it, but I don't think anybody cares at this point. I don't think it has quite the cult and pop culture phenomenon following that uh, it would be like saying who won the first Survivor. Right. And I remember that one. Who shot Jr. And she was also pregnant with Jr.'s wife. Uh, Kristen was Jr.'s wife, uh, wife's sister, and she was pregnant with Jr.'s child. So it was quite a story. What for, for you? And I mean, listen, I don't know that you, even you, I don't know if you've seen every movie ever made. Uh, however, 
I, I was being a little facetious. I, if you have, boy, I want to have you on the show every single night to go through all of it. But um, I wouldn't be able to. I'd be too busy watching that's, movies. That's true. For you, what is the best, and again, without necessarily giving away the ending, because we don't really want to have bomb threats called into the station here, what is the best twist ending or the best surprise ending? What movie had the best ending that you would say, oh, whatever you do, please don't ever give that one away. Let whoever, if it's 100 years from now, see that one with the surprise. What's that movie? Well, uh, uh, I mean, Crying Game is probably the most spectacular, but I, I would have, and I know this is a cliche ending, Citizen Kane is the answer. When everybody any, ever says what's a great anything, uh, they say Citizen Kane. But that ending, what that reveals at the end, especially given the way the movie started, is so exquisite and is so beautiful and is so perfect um, that uh, it would be... Uh, uh, I think it would always be more pleasurable for anybody to be able to watch that film and not see that ending coming. Uh, I would put The Usual Suspects up there as the uh, oh, yeah. as one of the all-time great ones. That's, that's probably my favorite one of the, the twist endings. I had not thought about that, but yeah. The, um, okay, so Peter Bogdanovich, director, um, just before I let you go, Peter Bogdanovich says there's no such thing as an old film. So he, he's taking the position that I don't care if the movie is 100 years old, you should never, ever, ever to anybody give away the ending. Do you buy that, that movies never age, that they are always fresh to whomever is going to see it the first time? Well, I don't buy that they never age, because obviously they uh, uh, they are made of a certain time, and that time uh, uh, changes. Uh, but I do like the idea that movies are eternal, just like books are. As long as you can get them on a shelf and uh, 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 watch them, uh, they are new to a new generation of people. There are kids not yet born, and there are grandchildren uh, not yet born, two kids not yet born, who are going to discover the Harry Potter books for the first time, or then the Harry Potter films, um, and get into them just as much as the kids of the 90s uh, uh, did. So in that respect, I, I agree with him. But I don't agree with this idea that we should all be on a uh, you know, in a state of silence that we cannot talk. One of the things that makes films exciting is that they do stick around. A classic film can still be fresh a hundred years later. But one of the exciting things is we get to talk about it. Oh, well, uh, there's another one. Charles Chaplin's City Life. What a beautiful ending that had. Uh, but I think someone saying that ending would hardly spoil it. We won't tell people then that the ending of The Sopranos is when Tony Soprano becomes a ballet dancer and runs off with the circus. No one saw that coming. It was a shocker of an ending. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, that may not be exactly. Uh, my memory may be slightly faulty on that one. I don't know. Maybe I fell asleep. Uh, Robert Thompson, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking some time. Always my, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. It is. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, though, about about. Spoiler alerts in 2019. It is really hard with social media to not have an ending of something spoiled unless you were watching it at the time it's on. I'll give you an example. Our family generally tapes and watches America's Got Talent at some point. It doesn't necessarily happen close to the day that it was on. Last night, last night, last night was the finale. Didn't get to watch it last night. I was working. We had put it aside, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to not watch it. I'm not going to not find out who won. Do my best. Anyway, 
Uh, that lasted about eight seconds because the winner was trending on Twitter. And so as soon as you went on Twitter, boom, top story with the person's face right there. Yeah, that was blown. So it's almost impossible. I'll tell you my bigger problem though, as we go to break here. Spoiler alerts, less concerning to me, less troubling to me than trailers that show the five good scenes in a movie. And that's the only good five scenes in the movie. And then you go to the movie and you go, this was a complete way. I should have just watched the trailer. That bothers me more than any kind of spoiler alert. Uh, You can go to thespec.com, by the way. There is a story where we got the idea for this one today. Do movie spoilers have a statute of limitations? That is the headline. You can find it there. It's a, it's a very thought-provoking, very fun piece to think about. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.